So. Yeah, and, and Scott, as you pointed out, I mean, when, you know, we, we all get overwhelmed. And so imagine being a high school student, being a first generation student, for instance, and, you know, the university is excited, you know, the university community is excited to welcome all these new students to campus and everyone wants to add their, their welcome and provide their information. But what it led to was, as Scott pointed out, we did this exercise and we had a, a group of, of you know, stakeholders come together and we said, what are you sending out from the time of student deposits until they show up on campus? Mm -hmm. And we started with little post-it notes, then we had to move to big newsprint. It was well over 90 different communications within the span mm -hmm. of those several weeks between May 1st and mid-August. And you can imagine that um, families are in and out, they're on vacation, whatever, but you're, you're getting all these emails and all this stuff that's pouring in and you might see it, read it and forget it. Um, it's just overwhelming. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host of today's episode, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, we're gonna be discussing effective strategies or approaches that institutions can employ to overcome administrative barriers and promote student success. We're joined by two experts in navigating institutional silos to talk a bit about several cases from their own experiences. Before I bring in our guest today, I provide you a little bit of background information on the podcast. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about our sponsor. As I mentioned, I'm your host for today's episode, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and her, and I am broadcasting from the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Adoa, and Potawatomi peoples, otherwise known as East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University, where I work. I am so excited about today's conversation. I was able to hear Dr. Scott Bass speak at the Council of Higher Education Management Associations, or CHIMA, meeting in May, and I instantly knew that this would be a fascinating topic to bring to Student Affairs Now. So today joining me are Dr. Scott Bass, the author of a new book out last year called Administratively Adrift. Dr. Bass is a professor of public administration and policy and provost emeritus at American University. And we're also joined by Dr. Sharon Alston, the former vice provost for undergraduate enrollment at American University, who during her tenure co-chaired the university's Reinventing the Student Experience or RISE project. Thank you, both of you, for joining me today for this episode. Um, and welcome to the podcast, Scott and Sharon. Um, that was a really brief intro, but I'd love to hear what else you would like to share about your work together at American University, what you're currently working on and doing in your roles, and how you come to this conversation. Um, so Scott, I'll have you kick us off. Well, well thank you, Sharon, for, for Heather and Sharon, for having me here. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and his. Um, I've been at American University now for 14 years, and I spent 10 years as the provost, I, I came from uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, where I was a dean for 12 years and had the opportunity to work with the President Freeman Herbowski III. Um, my interest in student life, in the culture of higher education, of education in general, has been something that has inspired me throughout my uh, life. Uh, I've been in higher education uh, from for, for for all of my career, um, and I love the institution. But when one really cares about the institution, it also has to acknowledge its weaknesses and seek to make uh, adjustments in that. And I've done that also throughout um, my career. Um, I was recently reminded um, of 
Frederick Weissman's film. I don't know if you've seen any of them. They're sin of verte. There's no 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 language, no narrative. It's really a view of institutions and how they behave. And one of his his most famous one was Titicate Follies, which dealt with uh, correctional institutions. But the one that I uh, was was interested in was high school, and it showed an inside of what it's like uh, for a student to interact in a high school without any narrative. And um, I saw it when I was uh, just finishing high school and my friend and I decided to take the film and show it at our high school. Uh, and I just graduated. The uh, staff were opposed uh, to that and they eventually agreed to view it as just the faculty of the high school and no one else. So I'm deep into how institutions work and as a provost, or even before that, but as a provost, it has a unique perch of the institution. I get to see how, unfortunately, delayed in terms of how all things work. And one of the things that we created, which Sharon was part of, was a, um, a, a, a committee that cut across the functional units of the university. And they bring forward the kinds of stuff of life that people deal with at the um, level of direct work with uh, student constituencies. And so that helped us um, eventually move into this uh, subject of um, what I call administratively adrift. And first, the most important thing is to understand how uh, the, the university works and how it is, um, I believe, a substantial mismatch between our operation functions and policies and procedures and the life of current students, Generation Z, who were born um, in around uh, 19, somewhere in the range of 1995 to around 2015, are really in that cluster. And their experiences, all generations are unique, but this one is, mm -hmm. is different. And we would like, I'd like to talk some about that. So that's a little bit who I am, uh, what I've done, and what, what brought me to do this book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, that background information and and uh, a little bit about an insight onto your career and how you came to this topic. Sharon, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I, I always like to say that I'm a native New Yorker and uh, I'm a first generation uh, college student. So I'm the first in my family to have gone to college. And I, I won't be as shy as Scott was. My career in education has spanned almost 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I recently retired, um, but I served at American University for about 23 years. Wow. And I had the pleasure of working with Scott Bass for 10 of those 23 years. And it was wonderful. I remember Scott telling me when he first started that he believed in changing communities. And um, I will give him the nod to say that I think that he left his mark at American University and changed us in many ways for the better. Um, but this work in, in particular really resonates with me because I was a first-generation college student and I was a financial aid recipient. And even though it was so very long ago, I, I, I can still relate to the issues that many of our students um, uh, experience when they arrive at, at the university. And it, it's come, it cuts across many universities, I know, but it touches me in a very personal way. Um, and so this is why I was excited about the RISE initiative and, and the work that we did. Um, as now that I'm retired, um, I remain very interested in issues around access and success and diversity. Um, I had worked for seven years as a high school counselor and I'm currently serving on the board of my high school alma mater, looking wow. at um, how they are serving their students and transitioning them from high school to college. So. I think I'm just always going to be a student in some capacity forever. So that's a little it. bit about me. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, both of you, I think, are going to bring some really interesting insights that is, you know, adjacent to a and familiar to our audience, but maybe not the 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 water that we typically swim in. So Scott, I read your book um, on my Kindle, actually, so I don't have a hard copy to 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 show, um, but I would love if you could provide a overview for our listeners of the book, Administratively Adrift, Overcoming Institutional Barriers for College Student Success. Um, and you've already talked a bit about what led you to explore the topic, but maybe why, why did you decide to turn it into a book? 
Well, after the um, experience we had, and let me say that, um, let me get to how we had the experiences. I came um, to AU at a critical time as a new president, a president who had been at the institution actually as provost, as dean, as even as an undergraduate, mm. as a, a lot white wow. at American University, so really knew this institution. And he basically said um, that he had done these roles and that he wanted to give me the keys uh, to the institution and that I would uh, work with him to help really accelerate and build the institution. So I had support from the very beginning. The community was supportive. And I sensed right away that the ambition of the institution was divergent from where it was as a setting. And part of that was um, welcoming a more diverse community uh, to the setting. And so that was my first uh, priority. And we set out, uh, and again, the, it was just wonderful to have someone like Sharon Alston to um, share these ideas with and then to implement them. But um, the, one of the first things we did, and we involved you know, a process to do that with the Faculty Senate, but we made SAT and ACT, the various tests, uh, optional. So that was one of the first things we did. We created a new honors, top honors program called the Frederick Douglass Distinguished Scholars Program. And what we did, and Sharon had this responsibility, was we wanted to change our financial aid approach. Um, and what it was when I arrived was 80% of financial aid was used for merit awards. And what we set out as a goal, and I would bet Sharon did maybe in a two-year period, was to switch it, is to move 80% of the money to need. And a number of uh, other presidents and provosts were shocked at that. But you know what? Every one of our metrics improved as a result of diversifying the student population and changing it. Um, and we, different than, than perhaps a large public, we're a mid-sized uh, research university. Our, our profile did, did change quickly. Um, and I anticipated that to be consequences uh, for that change in terms of dynamics on campus. It didn't happen right away, but it was something we, we expected. So um, we tried, um, and Sharon can talk more about that, is it, we learned that it's not just providing financial aid, it's, it's meeting 100% of need. And that's hard to do in a private university with the resources we have. But when we did that, students would graduate. So I'm very proud to say under Sharon's leadership that um, our highest retention cluster are Pell eligible students. Um, they uh, first to second year retention hovered between 89 and 91%. And I'm very proud of that, um, that that was, an, uh, it was hard work and, and a real achievement. And we found that by providing talented students with the resources they need that they can be successful. Nonetheless, um, the we then went through Middle States uh, accreditation review, and they pointed out, which we were aware, but that as the campus has changed, one needs to look at the culture of the institution. Um, we have all these wonderful learning opportunities. Are they really available to all students, and do they feel that they belong in mm -hmm. the setting? And so. Um, we had, we went through, we decided to do some workshops, some sessions, and I, I remember this rather vividly. We brought in a consultant, and we had a session with most of the leadership of the campus, faculty, and students, and the, the consultant was going through the agenda, and at some point, some students started speaking up about um, incidents that occurred on campus um, runarounds they had, uh, chafing that they encountered with some of our services. And it started to pick up momentum and actually get, get somewhat hot in the session. And the consultant stopped the session and broke and, and then met with us, all of us, and we decided to change the agenda to provide uh, that opportunity. 
And I think we walked away, and this is before we created the Reinventing the Student uh, uh, Experience Rise Initiative, um, to realize that we were on, we were at sea on a burning platform and did not know it. And I would surmise that every listener you have on this podcast uh, are in a similar boat and don't know it, is that there's so many issues that take place at the student level with the, and, and they either work their way through it or they give up. And so um, that put us on a path um, that took four years of uh, detailed granular work. I did um, have a recorder of a number of the events which helped for writing the book. Um, but I also uh, am a social scientist. I study organizations and uh, I was able to draw on um, years of, of knowledge, a lot of library work. This, this is a three-year effort to put a book like this together. And so summarizing it is often difficult because there's so many components uh, to making the case as to the mismatch of a generation. And it's not just to critique this book. It was an effort to also identify things that could um, uh, really move us forward um, as a nation. And I want to say one of the universals, whether we're large or small uh, institution, is the universal is the administrative structure, the underlying bureaucratic structure that we house. And we it is reinforced by the migration of professionals across the institutions so that um, we are really quite similar in uh, the way we function and work. We may have slightly different reporting lines, different patterns of how they work, different policies, and certainly different emphases and um, distinctiveness of our campuses. But one thing that holds um, universally is that we are uh, a traditional um, uh, administrative bureaucratic organization following the a model of about 100 years ago. Uh, created by Max Weber, um, and and it is uh, universal, and that's part of the discussion uh, in terms of Generation Z and the transition that we've seen in other industries outside of higher education, and that was part of our uh, mission as well in the RISE initiative, was to look outside of higher education. So with that as an introduction, I hope that's uh, helpful and will allow uh, me to turn to Sharon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the thing I took away was that the book uses your institution as a case study, but it has so much universal applicability, regardless of the institution that you're that you're approaching this um, kind of inquiry from. And I really appreciated the I, I appreciated many things about the book, but I really appreciated the ways that you kind of talk about some of the specific institutional barriers, but that they are really universal barriers and that there are models out there often, as you said, from outside higher ed that may be more um, useful for us to consider. Well, I appreciate um, you, you, you say that because I did try to explore um, and there are a number of articles, people use different terms uh, sure. for the experiences they had. We, we came up with the term pinch points uh, mm -hmm. for students. Um, we had uh, what was called a Bermuda Triangle where things would go and get lost. Other campuses <laughs> uh, had other terms among the students that would, uh, one, two campuses used the name of their campus and the word shuffle was the words mm -hmm. the students used. So I did, that's why library was very helpful in um, putting together and drawing from other campuses in terms of their stories and their successes. There are a lot of very successful models, of which I should mention parenthetically, uh, in terms of, uh, actually we had one, one of our administrators came up with the idea of a silo busting award, which we'd give every year. But among the community colleges, uh, there was there's a great deal of awareness, maybe because of the, the, the dire need to be responsive um, to do that. And ironically, among the institutions that um, are higher in the traditional pecking order, there's less, at times, less attention uh, to these issues. So vulnerability, seriousness of this uh, often uh, creates uh, action. I should also, one, one last statistic is to mention that 
as an industry, uh, just among four-year colleges and universities, uh, we call it four years, but of those that really graduate in four years, at least from the publics, is about half, it's a little more uh, in the privates. Um, so half don't make it in four years. When you break it down by gender, uh, women are more likely to complete the degree in four years. And then we break it down by race and it gets terrifying, um, is that among black men, uh, only about 20% complete the degree in four years. Now that all picks up at six years and eight years, but we're still talking about um, a tragedy in terms of the way our industry functions. And if we were a private institution, a private company, we'd be out of business. I mean, you can't serve and have half of your people graduate promising with a term of four-year degree. It's not four years. So these are the kinds of realities that um, we need to face and say, no, wait a minute, what can we do to change this uh, reality, uh, which is not new. In fact, it's gotten a little better in terms of graduation rates by race uh, and gender, um, but still infinitesimal and um, longstanding reality that we have to confront. Thank you. Thank you. So Sharon, let's let's uh, let's hear a little bit about your experience and some of the most common institutional barriers that you experienced that hindered student success and and how those particular barriers impacted the student experience. So um, Heather, there I, I did read the hard copy of the book, and um, I was able to mark it up and highlight it and get <laughs> use out of it. Um, there are actually a few that, that come to mind, I think, um, and Scott touched on these, but certainly um, the fact that we do operate in silos um, and that um, inhibits uh, how we communicate with students and inhibits the, it limits the quality of communications with students. We don't use current good methods to communicate with students. Mm -hmm. We're still using email. Kids don't read email anymore. Adults don't really want to read email anymore. Um, in, in and speaking about uh, financial issues, hidden costs, we do fully fund students, but Scott, you might remember that some years ago, we uh, uh, formed a working group and we looked at what are the hidden costs of having the true hallmark educational experience at AU. And I think the figure that we came up with was that it's about $5,000 over and above the uh, the cost of attendance in order for a student to have a good experience. But I think that the, the, the biggest barriers, I think, um, speaking of bureaucracy, really connect or tie to um, the, the misalignment of our academic regulations and federal regulations, specifically in the area of financial aid. There's a misalignment. The academic regulations are in place, of course, to be helpful to students and they're well-intentioned to support students. Um, financial aid, on the other hand, is heavily regulated by the Department of Education and we are audited every single year and we have to report every year. And so there are consequences for non-compliance. Um, and so, there's a um, there's a little bit of a conflict there. So there are a couple of instances that that come to mind. The first has to do with um, uh, satisfactory academic progress. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of a young woman who came to the university, very very talented uh, student, a very very gifted musician, but she was interested in the sciences at least upon initial entry. She had gotten a merit scholarship because she was so talented. And then whatever the merit scholarship didn't cover was filled in with need-based financial aid. Uh, this young lady encountered um, some challenges with a calculus course in her first semester. It lowered her GPA. Uh, in the second semester, she saw that she was having some issues with uh, chemistry and decided to drop the chemistry class and was actually feeling pretty good about the fact that she was doing okay. Um, she could function comfortably. She took a class in music and wor was working on a, a paper about the, um, I think it was about the, uh, around the design of pianos or something like that. 
and was really doing great with that paper. And in fact, so much so that the professor was very interested and felt, you know, here's a gifted student. I want to give her some additional time to make this a true A paper. And so he gave her an incomplete um, in order to allow her some time to, uh, to finish. Well, guess what? She had dropped her credit level. Um, she now had the incomplete. Um, she was really not making what the federal government felt was um, adequate progress toward um, completing her, her program. She was not meeting satisfactory academic progress. She lost her financial aid. Um, and so this sort of set off a whole series of conversations with the donors who gave her the scholarship. You can imagine the stress at the family home if there wasn't a lot of money. You can imagine the student stress and add to that the fact that the faculty member that gave the incomplete was out of the country. And this young woman had to file an appeal in order to have her financial aid reinstated. You know, the good news is that the financial aid ultimately was reinstated, but it was reinstated only for one semester on the condition that she complete the, the conditions under which the aid was reinstated in order for it to continue. Um, now, were there communications with the student? Probably, yes. There were emails or whatever, but again, students don't read email. All the stress could have been avoided um, if there was better alignment with that, you know, that academic regulation and the federal regulation. Um, another has to do with uh, repeating courses. The federal government actually does allow for students to repeat a course and receive their financial aid. And this is important because there are students who are looking at very competitive professional schools, right? Let's take the pre-med, for instance. You want to get the best GPA possible. So we have the case of a young man who took organic chemistry. He earned a C and then decided this isn't good enough. I need to retake this course because I'm required to get at least a B in organic chemistry. He took the course a second time and got a B minus. Well, that was not sufficient to meet that requirement. When he wanted to take the class again to get the B, uh, Department of Education regulations would say, nope, we've already allowed you to take that class. We allowed you to repeat it. You passed it both times. We're not spending any more money here. Mm. You're not getting any more money. So this young man actually ended up um, Full-time status at AU will take you up to 17 credits. So this young man um, added that class again. So now he's taking upwards of 17 credits. It was covered by his financial aid, but because he was taking a course overload, his GPA suffered. Mm. Now, the, the, the inequity in this is that a student who is not an aid recipient could take repeat a course as often as they want to. They're mm -hmm. paying for it. It puts the student at a competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. um, so wow. those are a couple of examples of, um, you know, um, barriers and mm -hmm. challenges that we're putting up for, for our students, sometimes well-intentioned, mm -hmm. um, but ultimately it hurts the student. Let me just follow up on the student, um, the, the uh, gifted uh, student. Um, one of the things that uh, the complaint from the student was nobody helped, and it was him or her, uh, with this process. It was a lone faculty member. Uh, I believe they went to the financial aid said, go talk to the chair of the department. Chair of the department refused to assist the student. Uh, and the bitterness of the family uh, towards the institution is just the a first-year student's going to have to make an appeal to the federal federal government. Now, she was asking to financially, why why didn't somebody catch this? Why wasn't there a, a flag in the at the registrar's office? There was no flag. You know, this shouldn't have happened. And the response, what I re recall being told, was that um, the the financial aid office. Uh, indicates to all students uh, what satisfactory academic progress is, and it's that was the student's responsibility to meet satisfactory academic progress. So um, that reminds me 
Sharon, one of the eye-opening experiences you provided us was um, what exactly do students receive by email or flyers or whatever, um, even before they arrive on campus and how you identify them. And I know you created a website eventually, but the point is sure, this student was told about satisfactory academic progress among what turned out to be as many as 90 other communications at that time. So maybe you go through how you did that, how that little light bulb in my mind, what we did and then what happened uh, following. So maybe that's a useful example of trying to do something but not having the consequence or having worse consequences than you yeah. thought. So yeah, and, and Scott, as you pointed out, I mean, when you know, we, we all get overwhelmed. And so imagine being a high school student, being a first generation student, for instance, and you know, the university is excited, you know, the university community is excited to welcome all these new students to campus and everyone wants to add their their welcome and provide their information. But what it led to was, as Scott pointed out, we did this exercise and we had a, a group of, of you know, stakeholders come together and we said, what are you sending out from the time a student deposits until they show up on campus? Mm -hmm. And we started with little post-it notes, then we had to move to big newsprint. It was well over 90 different communications within the span mm -hmm. of those several weeks between May 1st and mid-August. And you can imagine that um, families are in and out, they're on vacation, whatever, but you're, you're getting all these emails and all the stuff that's pouring in and you might see it, read it and forget it. Um, it's just overwhelming. So, so, overwhelming. so with that information, we set out to try and manage this better and bring that down to what, so that at least the other units knew what they were sending out and timing sequencing. There was no, nobody knew what they were doing across all these different offices. So we attempted to do that. And my understanding, things improved. We had a website. Um, in the year I stepped down, there was another review. Um, again, it had, it had gotten more organized. And I was told that actually it had bounced back and there were 130 communications that had gone out that year oh my gosh so, so oh it, my it gosh. is um and it's, you a, it, it's yeah. an issue of data governance and i and mm -hmm. you do touch on this in your book too um there were no controls over the database and so everyone had access to information and so in order to get it under control we I, i'd like to say we wanted to rely on the kindness of strangers. You know, we had to rely on each other to be honest and forthcoming, but because there was no data governance, people could just go in at any given time that they wanted to and pull the information pull the that list. they need and pull the list and send information to students. Yeah. So it, it's that's an a, ongoing challenge. Yeah, that's a that's I think that's a really important case study. And if if folks are watching today and haven't yet mapped the communications as you all did, you know, from the point that a student commits to coming to the institution up to, and I'm looking over at my corner of my desk here because I have a pile. I have a student who's about to become a first year student. I have a pile of oh. hand delivered letters, right? Which have gotten a lot more attention because there's physical copies but you know, at least a dozen or more um, emails that have come to me as a parent. So I think that's a really important um, example of an effective strategy that institutions can, can employ. Scott, can you talk about some more strategies beyond communications that kind of well, you eliminated? The, I think the most important uh, task uh, in any institution is to, is assessment. In other words, mm. Uh, you don't know what to do unless you have information uh, from the various constituents. So you, I didn't know we would have a problem with 130 communications going out from different offices. And then worse yet is then blaming the student. We told you so, and, and it's your fault. Um, is that it's just, there, there isn't a, a, perspective 
of walking in the student's shoes because nobody has an omniscient view of all aspects of the setting and so many different players. Now, you mentioned the national organization uh, you attended. There are 40 different providers on the administrative side of the institution alone, 40 different entities. And I attempted in the book to chart a number of them. And I didn't know, had I known at the time there were 40, I think I came up with maybe 29 myself just going through websites. So th there is a fragmentation, a level of granularity that goes on that is invisible to most members. I don't think the president is aware of what's going on. And then when I look at the different software packages that we use on campus to support each of these different specializations that were created, engineered, and designed without interoperability. We have at AU, actually the, the chart says 49, we've added a 50th um, to our databases. The enterprise systems are interconnected, but on the student sides, um, go through all of the different offices that support student and maintain their own records and you can be assured either by regulation or by choice, nobody else sees those records. Mm -hmm. So uh, a student could have, this is the, this is the kind of thing that, that um, worries me. A student may have had um, excessive binge drinking um, at night with a group of students. And fortunately we have a policy um, that there'll be no penalty to the student who reports because we're talking about someone who's going to die unless they get their yeah. hospital the medical medical They're, amnesty. You know, yeah, correct. We have medical amnesty. Mm -hmm. So um, fortunately, if a student then is taken to the hospital, um, but that remains nobody knows when the next day rolls around and perhaps maybe the student doesn't show up in class or if the student does that all is not well. Um, nobody knows what's going on except the handful of people that were involved in the incident. Perhaps it was reported there was an incident to the president um, that someone was taken to the hospital. But for the most part, nobody can help manage and support and assist in any of the other divisions because it's, it, it's private. Financial aid, private information, even as pro I don't know the financial uh, issues. And on the other hand, if we when we are notified that there's a change, we don't need to, we don't know the details. But if there's a change, the student has lost financial aid, um, or or it has been reduced, that's going to have a whole bunch of implications for everybody on on the campus. So we are really really uh, siloed. And so um, when I start thinking about how we can do better at this. Um, through the rise in this too, we, we did look outside. I don't know if you want me to go into some of the discussion of um, some of the ideas besides- Maybe give a, an example or two. I think that would be really helpful. So so the, we found about in our place and everyone, if they did an assessment, we came up with about 60 items that were chafing students, either from the staff or, or student points of view. And we were able to make adjustments in improving them. I mean, we, we have a one-stop center, which a lot of places have, but from the student's point of view, it's the first stop center. Mm. Um, and so they, the, when I say first stop is that some of the details that are involved in these things only can be done by the expert in the specialized office. So that's, you know, it's better. It, I'm glad we have a one-stop center, but it isn't. Uh, and the students see it as such. Um, but when we come to these kinds of structural uh, impediments, you know, we can adjust our offices, make them work better, flow communication better, and, and, and we've done a lot of that. But when it comes to somebody having responsibility for the success of the student, having accountability for the success of the student. On one hand, everybody's responsible, but that means nobody is responsible. Mm -hmm. 
And mm -hmm. so a student can drift, a student, you know, sometimes it's nobody's, nobody's fault is that one case was of a, a student who was depressed um, and uh, and went to the, on, on his or her own to the uh, counseling center. Um, they did an assessment, it was not a crisis. The student was then scheduled for an appointment in, in two weeks. Student went back, things got, you know, more and more, student was very sad. Um, and finally the appointment came up and um, the student uh, got an, an urgent email saying that the counselor was ill and was out for the day and that we'd have to reschedule. Student never rescheduled and just dropped out eventually. Um, so it's complicated and it's not any necessarily anyone's fault, but it's understanding what it's like to be in your setting, not, not my setting. And to do that involves a lot of conversation, involves surveys of students. We, we did learn through survey um, the, the differences in the sense of belonging between black students and white students. We learned through the surveys about the culture of the setting and how different students felt that the institution cared about them. Um, we learned uh, through journaling projects. Uh, one of the case studies in the book was a result in, in who wrote well, I thought, was a transfer student and um, I changed the, so it could not be identified, but those were her written journal, pro, uh, uh, it was a weekly journal um, of how she began, came to the school, it was a dream school, so excited, and how eventually through loneliness and lack of connection, um, just ground down, and it's in her words in, in, in the book. So there's things you, you can't necessarily control. But the idea that is well used in other uh, human service uh, agencies is the idea of case management. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. there is a cross-trained individual who is the point of contact, and we did that through initially through guides, but it was not. It was an earlier stage of having a guide. Is really having someone who has the authority uh, and has the accountability to communicate with the specialists in there. It's not to take the jobs away from the specialists, but it is to have a timely flow of information so somebody has a broad overview. So there's two, there's three, two major components to that. One is the creation of a case manager as we know it in other places. The second is what I call the timely flow of actionable information. That's different than the information that these 40 or more specialists have in their divisions. It is a, uh, and this may involve, because um, it doesn't exist, is a redesign using perhaps even AI to synthesize what is urgent, essential, and it needs to be immediately given both to the student, again, student awareness, and to a case manager to work through um, that issue. So it is useful, actionable data we do not have. And you, you have, your specialist has their information, but nobody else has that who has a broader view of the institution. Now, for example, with the, the woman and the, or, or man or woman with the financial aid problem, there was nobody to talk to outside of the group to say, we will provide a temporary financial coverage. Mm. You know, these things get to me much too late. I say, well, look, we'll cover that until you find out about, don't you worry, tell your parents that you don't have to drop out of school. We will cover you mm -hmm. until this gets resolved. It needs to be clarified. Um, there are simply tools we have that could easily be done in very difficult, turn to be crisis situations. The student who, who's, uh, who, who eventually dropped out, perhaps there could have been someone to, you know, a peer counselor, a phone call coming in and the student that, that that's chronicled was actually in the book um, who just kept going down, down, down was actually a call from her uh, guidance counselor from the community college that was the most important communication to help her work through uh, the issues. Now, maybe her parents said something. I don't know how it happened, 
But that's what made a difference is somebody who cares, who really cares about you and makes that and has the time and the energy and the resources and the information to do that. So yeah. that's one of the things. And it's then packaged in what's called the chief experience officer. And one yeah. of the places we spent a lot of time with, we took an entire busload of the leadership of the campus from Washington, D.C. And we went by bus to the Cleveland Clinic. I said, why would we do that? Actually, one of the um, vice, pro vice presidents argued that we should take the bus because that will help bond us a bit who really don't know each other that well and, and, and have to work together. And so we rode the bus for you know eight hours, including one of the, the board members, press chair of the board came with us. We spent time there understanding how they transformed a much larger scale, mm -hmm. how they transformed this very bureaucratic, very large organization in terms of the patient experience. Mm -hmm. And we spent, they took us through all kinds of details for an entire day. And then we looked at how can we learn from that? And part of it was this notion of a chief experience officer. Mm -hmm. That's someone who is um, at the at the president's discretion, works directly with the president or chancellor of the campus, and his um, job is to look campus, or in this case, clinic-wise, mm -hmm. uh, how every single function serves the goal of the president to put patients first in terms of their care, their communication, the message training for everyone, including the, the, the most famous surgeons, was around empathy. Mm -hmm. and to take the time to talk to the patient and have empathy. And so we were meeting with some of the docs and they say, look, you know, it, it's improved my, it takes time, but it's improved my, my practice, my care mm -hmm. of the patients. So it's just little That's things, saying the name, doing rounds. Yeah. We don't, we don't, faculty don't do rounds, um, yeah. probably do the names, mm -hmm. uh, but knowing the student, caring about the student and what's known as a relationship centered culture of mm -hmm. fostering that even before they arrive yeah. um, are important things uh, to, to do. Even one example that has been shown at another institution was um, as students came in, they, these are likely to be first generation, more vulnerable students, students of color. They'd write an essay about um, their experience and their, their fears, their worries about success in the institution. Students of the same background, advanced students, maybe third or fourth year, would, would write an essay about how they overcame the obstacles that they encountered and gave that to the incoming class, the incoming group. They then were asked, after they thought about it and talked about it and then met with the students, then wrote an essay to future students, how they need to think about coming into the setting and how they can be successful. And they found that was very helpful. But these kinds of techniques of bonding, bringing people together, having pizza with the students when they first arrive, building relationships is an important component. And I said, then assessing the setting and making making serious changes to improve uh, the culture and climate uh, of the setting is what um, I think is paramount at this time. Um, I love that. And, and I, I guess, let me mention one other point for for your audience is that this generation of students is different. They mm -hmm. are the first to be um, have the opportunity of the smartphone. The benefits of how organizations changed have changed to provide service and communication and alliances that that leveled much of the bureaucracy made things simple. I still can't imagine how in the world I can go to the supermarket, buy food and then get points and then go to a gas station it has nothing to do with that supermarket. And I can get a, get a discount for a gallon of gas instantly. I mean, I just push a button and you want it? Yes. And I get, I get the gas, I see it change the price. And I get now, if we can do that level of technology and we can't even communicate with the office next door, give me a, a, a <laughs> Right. <laughs> anyway. Well, and I think, and I think part of it is the it's part of it is the institution, but I think some of it is also helping students figure out some of these. You know, they almost need like their secret decoder ring. Um, 
And Sharon, can you talk a bit about some of the tips and advice, though, that you would give to students and and maybe those, you know, family support members, uh, parents, caregivers who are who are in their lives in kind of about ready to either embark upon college or who are facing challenges today? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on my, my parent hat because I went through this a little bit earlier than you, Heather, but it's, yeah. it's a good experience. Um, I think, you know, I'm listening to what Scott has said, find a person. Um, mm. Scott was very good about um, instituting or creating the, the, the guide positions. We now call them first year advisors. And so the first year advisors, in effect, are the, the person. But even if the institution doesn't have that, I think it's important for students and families to find a person. Um, I think for parents, I think it's paying attention to the, the communications, the information that you're getting from the institution. I think it's encouraging your students to pay attention. I think it's pay, pay attention to your kids mm -hmm. and be in contact with them and listen, listen to what they are saying to you about their experience. Um, but I think that ultimately it really just comes down to finding your, your people. And I think about my, uh, my colleague um, at the university who walked the campus. And for those families that she met, she was the face of the university. Um, she remained in contact with them. They would reach out to her whenever they their kids ran into difficulty. Um, certainly one of the, the things that makes me the, the happiest is the young woman that I adopted. I call her my, my other daughter. I met her when I um, went out recruiting uh, in, in uh, San Francisco some years ago. She was a first-generation Latinx student, and her mom was very concerned about her coming all the way across to the East Coast, and I said, I promise I will take care of her. I will take care of her, and, and I stuck to that, and, you know, I was in contact with mom, in contact with the daughter all through four years, and we remain in contact today, and she graduated. She graduated with a great job. Um, I take no credit for that. She was very talented, but it just comes down to people and making connections and whether there is um, a formal structure for that or not. I think it's, it's fine. It's finding people, you know, when you go to orientation, if there's an administrator that, you know, that, that you seem to connect with on some level, make that connection, keep that business card, keep that phone number, stay in touch. Yeah. Yeah, I was always um, at a previous campus that I that I worked at. The dean of students would always tell tell parents or family members pull out their cell phone and would actually give his cell phone to everybody in the ori orientation audience. And it was like, mm -hmm. if you need to call someone, it's an emergency, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. you can call me. And I thought that that level of of connectivity was really. And it's just one example, right? Of like you said, um, with the young woman you mentored, like it that we care, right? We are mm -hmm. here in this business because we care about students. Mm -hmm. um, and our institutional structures don't always help us do that in the most effective way as as we would like them to do. Um, we're getting close to running out of time, but Scott, I do want to give you a moment to just talk briefly about policy makers, because I think there's another layer here, you know, it's institutional barriers. And we've talked a bit about, you know, policies like FERPA, as well as financial aid policies. But what do you think the role should be for government agencies? And then, of course, professional associations um, in trying to support the policy changes that are necessary for us to move forward to a less administratively adrift campus. So I, I think the the main message is how do these professional organizations, which are, are many, um, engage in a conversation about the challenges we have in meeting the needs, meeting the needs and expectations of a generation of students. Having that conversation opens the door. Again, there's so many other immediate issues that are focused in each of the discrete professional units. But there's a broader message. We are all in this together. I mean, our goal is to see the students have success, to, to not just graduate, but to have a wonderful learning experience, an enriching learning experience, to grow as part of 
the experience, not just to, to get the degree, it's more than that. So how can we have a national dialogue that recognizes we're not doing so well on that? Uh, I would add that, so that's that's among the, the, the national organizations and, and, um, and that's a, a long-term kind of conversation. Uh, the other place I, I look to is accreditation. Is accreditation is a uh, is is done. I, I've served on uh, accrediting uh, committees, uh, gone on the campus and done accreditation reviews. And one of the components um, in that is the meeting with students. Now, generally, and and in my case, the the, the schedules work that all of the representing all the different divisions that we break out into the various uh, silos when we meet on a campus. We were all available at that time slot, and we said, let's all just sit down with the students. Well, it turns out a total of three students showed up, of undergraduates, of which two were reporters for the school magazine. So <laughs> the, the going back to the question, yeah. the question is how do students uh, participate in these things? We really didn't have much of a view of the student uh, perspective, but accreditation could be done a little differently that would require the uh, the provost and whoever's the vice provost, vice president, whatever the title is in student affairs to, um, to there would be a protocol that would be done um, by the accreditation produces the protocol. And we would use that to come back with an assessment. You know, we do a survey where both of us work together and identify uh, issues that are really going on on our campus. That seems to me to be a key accreditation piece. And I can tell you, it didn't happen on the one I was on when really no students and no graduate students showed up at all at the graduate session, none. Um, and generally, uh, at some places, the students are primed. They're told what the, you know they talk about before they bring in a, a cherry-picked group to talk to mm -hmm. the accreditation agencies. I'm saying that's not the way to do this. And to do this is to recognize these components are absolutely interrelated in terms of understanding the student experience, get that information, it's required in accreditation, and then we examine that uh, on the site visit. So that's just a specific example for, I think, accreditation, which is, uh, you know, we take seriously because you don't, you know, pass right, you with right. financial, able to use financial aid um, or your, you know, your accreditation status. Um, the, the most important group, of course, are your presidents and your provosts who are responsible and the board, the board of trustees or board of advisors, whatever you have in your structure, is that this, when we get into really moving from a siloed structure to one that's much more aligned and interconnected around the uh, student point of view, um, as we talked about in 1937, is um, that's gonna take a lot of time, it's gonna take some software, a lot of software work, agreements across uh, the various divisions and flow of information. Um, and that's a multi-year agenda. And each campus has their own unique uh, culture and style of doing this, but that's where the real rubber hits the road and where it needs to be done. And I wanna say parenthetically, again, for this generation, it's not just that they're a digital generation, They've gone through school shootings. They've gone through a pandemic. They've gone through racial reckoning. They've now seen the, the rebound and the reaction in terms of that. They've seen the emergence and the growth of the far right and extremism. They've seen a uh, an event at the Capitol that uh, on all of our cell phones that was just uh, un unbelievable. Environmental crisis, we have weather, fire, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, drought, uh, enormous heat, enormous cold. That's their lives. They understand that, and they're they're worried about this. And then we add this to a a, a war, a, a sovereign nation invaded by a nuclear power. This is their world. It's crushing. No wonder they're vulnerable. Before they arrived, and before the pandemic, half of the the more than half of the women said that life that in the last twelve months they felt life was hopeless. This is serious stuff. And to assume after the pandemic, we're bringing everybody back and, and it's the business as usual and the office operate and we offer more programs and more support isn't enough. It is a fundamental right. difference. And so it's not something that's right now. 
it's for the next decade. We already know the scores are coming in, the, the consequences for young people. And we need to change the way we do business. And there's a concept in, in uh, the social sciences of institutional lag. Matilda White Riley did this and it's been done in mental health and other sectors is the importance for institutions to recognize this huge gap and to now move the institution. My book is not about how to students adjust to the campus. It's how do the campus adjust to the student? That's right. the goal. And we need that national conversation. So those are my comments about mm -hmm. the outside organizations and the inside leadership. Mm -hmm. Well, I am so grateful to both of you today for sharing um, the, the great work that you did together at American and then how this is really a case study for all of us who care about students who really want our institutions to do better um, by them because of all the factors that you named, Scott. Um, just, you know, give me a sentence or two as a final thought. And then if you would like to share how or where people can connect with you, if you're on social media or if they can find you on LinkedIn, that would be great. If not, it's fine. Um, and uh, Sharon, why don't we start with you? Fine, kind of final thought. Final thought. Um, I think that the, my big takeaway from all of this is really listen to your students. Mm -hmm. I'm very sensitive to the pinch points, um, very sensitive to the fact that most industries would not be in existence today if they did not listen to their customers. Mm -hmm. And I think that higher education needs to adopt the same kind of mindset. I think that there's a lot that we can learn from other industries. Um, as Scott pointed out, you know, the Cleveland Clinic, we also had a, a, a supermarket chain that came in and they talked to us about their customer service. Um, and I think the other thing is uh, to be in the mindset of continuous um, innovation, right? Mm. Um, our students are changing. We need to change as institutions. And with the innovation, it's don't be afraid to fail. You may try something. It, it may not work. Um, and I think that our senior level executives need to give us permission sometimes to try something and fail and then reset and try again. But we have to keep trying. So my final words. Thank you so much. Students first. Students first. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Scott, what about you? So it, my book is really a um, simply an effort to put the voice out there. It, it took a while to put this thing together. Um, I am writing articles as well. It's very hard to write a 3,000 word essay for me. It's, uh, it's <laughs> uh, it, it, and, and a, I'm a social scientist and it's, it's a different kind of journalism and I'm learning and I'm trying to do it, but I've had a number of articles now uh, published in different uh, magazines to the to the professionals in the industry. And um, I wanna be part of a, of a national conversation. I wanna be part of developing um, some of the software uh, ideas that would make sense for people who work in the institutions as opposed to private vendors that are working in corporations and then selling us products that are difficult to use and don't quite connect uh, so well. I do remember a story that Sharon told me on that, um, and that uh, I, I, so I, and I, so I have a, 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 a center here at the university. Uh, Sharon is a fellow and and can do consultations uh, to campuses. Another person is now a, a fellow who um, implemented all of the guide uh, initiatives that we did at American University to provide technical support to other campuses. And a third person has just accepted a fellowship who did the transition from our general education program to um, a totally different um, experience in terms of a core curriculum and how we did that, which is people describe changing gen ed is like uh, moving a graveyard. So we've lived through that and that person's available for technical support. So I, I, I wanna have more dialogue and more communication and I'm my, my email is is readily available um, and a few campuses actually have um, begun a, a conversation so great well we hope that this um, episode sparks some additional um, connection and outreach in it and definitely appreciate both of you sharing about uh, the work today um, 
Also, just as always, sending our heartfelt appreciation to our dedicated behind the scenes work of our producer, Nat Ambrosi. Thank you for making us look and sound great. And then thanks also to the sponsor of today's episode. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services, And you can learn more by visiting simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. If you will take a moment to visit our website and click on the sponsors link, you can learn more. While you're there, if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly e-newsletter, please visit our website and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our list. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to all of our listeners and to everybody who is watching. Make it a great week, everyone.